2 Timothy chapter 3 is our scripture. So you want to flip your, flip your Bible open, put your finger in there. And as you're doing that, I'm just going to kind of go do a little review here. So um, if you weren't here last week or the last time I was teaching, um, it's a series. It's, it's truth, love, and obedience. This is the attributes of God that you're going to find throughout the Bible. It's parts of him that we really should be reflecting as we draw closer to him. It's stuff that's revealed to us. It's attributes of him that involve how we maintain our relationship with him. Because obviously, if we're going to reflect these attributes, we have to have connection with him continually. And it talks about our effectiveness too, because ultimately, like I said last time, we're salt and light. Um, I, I didn't choose that phrase. Jesus chose that phrase when he talked to the disciples. And they were very specific terms. He could have said, you're going to be daisies and daffodils. He could have said, you're going to be cows and horses. But no, he said, you're going to be salt and light. And salt is a preservative in, in the context of Jesus' day. That's why he chose that word. It's meant to preserve things from rotting. And when salt gets diluted, what do you do with it? Well, you chuck it. You throw it out on a path. You can actually de- destroy weeds with it, as some of you know. You put vinegar in it, and you can you can kill almost anything. Um, and then what about light? Why why light? Well, because light exposes darkness. And in Jesus' day, to say light was to actually say, um, you're going to be the light of the world. You're going to be the illumination for others to see the truth. So when he said light doesn't get hid under a bushel basket, you don't put it under a bed, what he was saying was you need to let your light shine. You need to let the truth show. And so in that salt and light, we need to basically engage the world and be holy and and show the light and be the salt. That's what's holding this world together, if you weren't aware, is the fact that the church is here. If, if you can imagine the church being taken out, for example, as in the rapture, what's going to happen? The world's going to implode, <laughs> frankly. There is nothing left to restrain Satan other than the Holy Spirit living in us, working through us. There's nothing left. So that's why salt and light. And that's why last time I also talked about blind spots. That's how I brought it up. Because we all have got blind spots about how effective we are. There's things we can't see. There's things we don't see about our walk. And then there's things we just don't want to see. (laughs) The things that we probably are avoiding are things that God is talking to us about and we're doing the whole la, 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 I'm not listening kind of thing. But anyway, that's where we started last time. We're talking about salt and light, but in essence, we're talking about truth, love, and obedience. And so that's why we're continuing on today with a talk about truth. Um, Okay, it's not our talk, it's my talk, but you can talk about it later. Um, You don't have to look too hard to find uh, what happens to individuals in society when truth becomes relative, when truth is no longer absolute, when truth is no longer unchanging. You remember Pilate interrogating Jesus. Um, Jesus could have said a word and 10,000 angels would have saved him. He could have also rebuked Pilate and said, you're a puppet, I'm taking over. But here's what Pilate said. He said, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. 
For everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And of course, Pilate said, what's truth? What happened to Pilate? In the dustbin of history, a conflicted man who died conflicted because he knew he faced the truth and ignored it. And Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, weeping over Israel because they would not heed the word of God, the weeping the weeping prophet. Before they were led away in chains, the ten tribes, he spoke to them, so shall you say to them, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and been cut off from their mouth. So it is with us as the church, as salt and light. If the truth departs from us, what is going to happen to everything else? You need to realize that if we do not speak the truth, no one else will. The truth is going to be whatever the mobs or whatever some well-intentioned individual has to say about God and about the world and about us. If we could flip the slide, please. One more. Okay, I'm going to begin with a story. And brace yourselves, it doesn't end well. <laughs> some of you may remember. September 3rd, 1983, Korean Airlines... Flight 007 took off from Anchorage, Alaska, with 269 people on board. It was actually a flight of two. Flight 015 was right behind it, having come from Kennedy Airfield. They arrived in Anchorage for refueling. They're on their way to Seoul, Korea, and they're about an hour apart. 007 took off and headed due west. Could you flip the slide? There's a map. You see the bold line? That's the actual flight path of 007. And below was their intention flight path. But as the aircraft took off at 4 in the morning, things were normal. They were on a Bethel departure. Should have been a course of 245. Headed to Bethel, Alaska, over a little town, proceeding on the R-20 route, which would take them past, as you can see, the Kamchatka Peninsula, the Kurile Islands, and into across Japan, and on to Korea. It's supposed to be about a seven-hour flight or so, depending on the winds. Had plenty of fuel, experienced crew, thousands of hours of experience. But as they took off, they headed not 245, but they headed more or less 260, which is almost due west. And as they headed out, they checked out with departure and said, 007 climbing through 15,000 for 35,000. And the controller said, I show you 12 miles right of course, continue, switch to Tokyo, flight level 350. Nothing heard. They just kept going. And as they climbed out, everything was normal. Everything was fine. Flight attendants started preparing breakfast. People were snoozing, low light. But you can see where their flight path took them. They headed right toward the Kamchatka Peninsula. And at that time... This is the height of the Cold War. And the Kamchatka Peninsula, Peninsula has a little city called Petropavlovsk on it. And that is the, west, the East Coast Soviet submarine base for all their nuclear submarines. And in addition, under SALT II, the Soviets being banned from developing new mobile missiles, they were testing a mobile missile that day. It was going to launch from Siberia and land on the Kamchatka Peninsula. Nobody knew this, of course, except 
the super secret squirrel military people that know these things. So the aircraft was plodding on, no idea that they were off course, apparently. And as they approached Kamchatka, could you flip the slide? At the same time, there was an RC-135 reconnaissance plane doing high-level, top-secret intelligence gathering of that missile launch and recovery. And it happened to be just off the flight path of this aircraft. And as it disappeared from radar, from Russian radar, guess what popped on the Russian radar screen? Korean Air 007. And so the Russians thought, oh my goodness, this guy's coming in. And they diverted four MiG-31s to try to intercept him. But unfortunately, they ran low on fuel before they could intercept him. And so 007 flew over the Kamchatka Peninsula in the dark with an overcast deck so they couldn't see anything. And they just kept going. Could I have the next slide? And as they proceeded on, they were corresponding with Flight 015 behind them, saying, hey, I show my arrival time at such and such in Seoul. What do you see? And they responded, um, well, we can't really hear you very well, but we're thinking we're going to be a little bit earlier than you. And the crew didn't really notice that. They didn't make any note of that. They started looking at their wind calculations. Sophisticated navigation system. And they still couldn't figure it out. And then they had trouble reporting and hearing back from Tokyo Center as they were talking with them. Why couldn't they hear them on UHF radio? They switched to VHF. Still couldn't hear them. But unbeknownst to them, they had turned down the guard frequency and had been talking with their other aircraft and trying to figure out how to communicate with center. And so they ignored all the calls that had been happening all along this course from the Russians on shorter-range VHF radio. So here they are coming up on Sakhalin Island. And at this point, the air defense systems were on high alert, and there were already orders in place to shoot this thing down because it had already crossed over Soviet airspace, and here it was about to go into it again. So SU-15 and a MiG-23 were both diverted to intercept the aircraft, and they joined up at 33,000 feet with this aircraft, which is where it had stabilized. And as the SU-15 joined up behind it, he saw the lights. He saw that it was a civilian airplane. But unfortunately, he didn't make any mention of that. So this aircraft proceeds into the airspace. The order is given to shoot it down. And at that same time, they received, 007 received an order to climb from Tokyo Center, thinking that this aircraft was approaching Tokyo airspace, and so they needed to climb higher. So at the very time that the aircraft was going to fire, 007 began to climb and slowed, and it was interpreted as evasive maneuvers. And so immediately, the aircraft was shot down. Two missiles were fired. One penetrated the aircraft, and it began a 12-minute descent. The pilots maintained control of it. They started a slow descent of 007 as it went down, and it disappeared off the radar screens, the Soviet radar screens, at about 5,000 feet. And nobody knows what happened to that aircraft because the Soviets covered it up. They actually deployed ships to create diversional um, search groups, as you would call it, so that anybody who was trying to figure out where the aircraft went down would not know. The question still remains, did the people die? Did they ditch at sea? Normally in a decompression like that, the airplane would disintegrate and fall out of the sky, but it didn't. So 10 years later, the black boxes were handed over as part of the 
when the wall came down on the Soviet Union. As part of Glasnost, the black boxes from these aircraft were handed over, and here's what was discovered. is that the pilots, those crew, when they took off, they selected on their autopilot something called heading mode, wherein if they had been doing things correctly, they would have noticed that they were too far off their basic course when they selected heading mode for it to actually track to that 245 radial to take them out on the R-20 as they had intended. In fact, it followed the magnetic compass is what it did. Their lack of knowledge about the system itself and how it worked caused them to be so far off course that they couldn't even believe that they were that far off course. And so all of this was a great surprise, a great surprise to the world. And I say this story because I heard it before in a sermon. It's a little lengthy, but it's worthy mentioning. We are all in a position where we need to check our navigation every single day. We need to know what is our compass based on? (laughs) What are we looking at? What are we aiming toward? Because if we're going to go by what the earth standard is, the magnetic standard, it's going to be different than what God's standard is. So with that, let's go ahead, if you would. You've got your finger in 2 Timothy chapter 3, right? I hope so. Or if you've got an iPhone, you're frantically trying to get it to work. Or in my case, I can't read. Okay. We're going to read all of Second uh, Timothy 3, essentially, verses 1 through 17. Um, normally, I'd say let's stand, but we've already done a lot of that. So <laughs> let's, let's just go ahead and read. But know this. This is Paul talking to Timothy, one of his last letters to Timothy. That in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For this sort of, for these are the sort who come, I'm sorry, for this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Now as Yannis and Yambris resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs was also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I adored. And out of them, out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all of those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, But you must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through all faith which is in Jesus Christ. For all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, we ask you to speak to us today, not through my words, but through your work and your power. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would um, work in us and and prod us and open up those parts of our lives and our hearts where we need instruction, where we need correction. I pray that uh, whatever you do in us today, it would find fruit in who we become and who you make us into. And we ask you to do this because of your glory and for your pleasure. In Jesus' name. So, of course, I chose an airplane story because, um, hey, I like airplanes. Right, Cole? Love airplanes. Always loved them. That's why I joined the Navy. I was just sold out. Had to do it. And they let me in. I couldn't believe it. I was, uh, I was flummoxed. I kept passing tests, and I kept thinking, surely someone's going to figure out who I am. But no. I actually took tests with a couple of MIT grads, and they didn't pass, and I did. And I was like, wow, they make these things so simple. How did they do that? Uh, I don't know. Maybe those guys knew all the wrong things, and I knew the right things. But I tell an airplane story because we're all on a, we're all on a path, guys. We all launched at birth. We're all on a trajectory. We have a course. We have a course with destiny. We're going somewhere. Granted, Jesus got hold of us somewhere in this process, and we'll talk about that, but you've got to understand that we have choices to make, that, that what we do matters, what we think matters, and because we're out there on our own, we are the captains of our ship. And when we took off, we had three basic problems. First problem was our sin, right? That's when we found Jesus. And we're like, holy smokes, you mean the law points out my sin? And I'm like, oh, no, who's going to fix that? Oh, it's Jesus. Awesome. Checklist done. Jesus fixed it. But then the next thing is you're taking off is you realize I'm still sinning. I'm still doing that. What is going on? And you realize it's a work in progress. Being sanctified is something that takes time. And Jesus works on you. And you get convicted, hopefully. So we're working on that. The next thing on the checklist is how do I live for Jesus? How do I navigate and how do I make my life conform to his plan for my life? And that is where we end up a little bit clueless. We end up a little bit wandering. We need to be different. We know that. We heard this in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Yeah, we knew that. And we're just struggling to figure out how to do this. Hebrews 7.19 tells us about the hope we had because we knew that the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And there's a sweetness in that. Even though we're flailing and we're trying to figure out how to live holy, he provides hope because he's going to accomplish it. And we recognize that. And if you've gone down the Romans road when you were saved, if someone showed that to you, you know that you're a slave to righteousness. God be thanked that though you're slaves to sin, now you became slaves of righteousness. And Paul says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness. And so the answer to that third question is, how am I going to live? How am I going to navigate? comes down to this. I am a slave. I'm a slave to one or the other. 
But since I'm a slave to Jesus, I need to find out what does he want? How does he want it? What needs to be done? How does it need to be done? And the second thing is like that, but a little different. If we go to the trouble of finding out what God wants from us or how we're supposed to live, maybe we should find out what he's really like. Why are these things important to him? How does he think? What are God's priorities? What's Jesus' priorities in my life? And those things are commands and statutes and law and testimonies and precepts. Psalm 119.48 talks about the word, the word of truth, the precepts, the testimonies, the commandments. That is our orientation, the truth, the precepts, the laws, the commandments, the testimonies. That is our navigational beacon. That is his truth. And we know that that will transform us. As Paul says, do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. So it is growing in the knowledge of the living God who is the truth, and finding out what the Lord longs for in us. Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 25, 5, guide me in your truth and teach me, for your God my Savior, for my hope is in you all day long. And as Jesus prayed for his disciples and for us in John 17, he said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And he assured us that we would receive it in the Holy Spirit when he said, When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He'll only speak what he hears from the Father, and he will tell you what is yet to come. And so that's how we arrive to this outline today. If you look at your outline, we're going to talk about the difference between two different worldviews. True north is an orientation of how the, the earth is laid out. Imagine the pole going through the north and the south, You have lines of longitude going around. You have an equator. You have lines of latitude going up. That's an orientation to true north. As you know, magnetic north is going to differ. It's going to depend on concentrations of minerals in the earth, atmospherics, all kinds of things. If you compare them with how you were raised and who you are in your natural body, that would be a magnetic north kind of indication. It might point you in the general direction, but it's not going to get you to where you want to go. And likewise, God's truth is an orientation that supersedes anything you know. I mean, we all like to think common sense is in the Bible, but I haven't found it yet. It's not true. How you're raised does not really matter to God. He's not a respecter of persons. His standards, his objectives, his character, his nature is not of this earth. Yes, this earth is created by him. It reflects his character, but we need to look to him for that. That is a biblical worldview, okay? A biblical worldview is when you go to the truth and then you look at your circumstances and you interpret your circumstances through that lens. That is a biblical worldview. And that is really the heart of God and what he's calling us to. And in this, you're going to see that truth is objective. God is separate. He is truth. Therefore, we do not influence it. The truth is absolute, It's unchangeable. There's nothing else that we can do to add or detract from God's truth. Another thing about the truth, especially God's truth, is that it's revealed to us. This is not some mystery which you've got to, I don't know, go to a soothsayer or 
buy a lottery ticket to find out. The truth is understandable because if he revealed it, he intended it to be understood. And of course, lastly, the truth is applicable. And if it's not applicable, what good is it? Because his intention is for us to be changed and to live differently in our short flight on this earth. So what about your your worldview? How objective is the truth to you? How separate from you is the truth? Revelation 4.11, when you think about the throne room of God, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they exist and they were created. When God spoke, the world became. Matter came into being because he spoke. Therefore, he is eternal. He is totally different. He is not us. You have to understand that God is not like your big buddy in the sky. I know there are some people who, bless their hearts, they have a mate whose uh, idea of worshiping God is going hunting. But the truth is he's not your big buddy in the sky. God is holy and separate, totally different from us. We are his creation, yes, and we have his likeness. But don't mistake God for somebody who you can bargain with or you can tell, I think I like this truth better. His truth is objective because he is objective. He created. It all exists because of him. Why else would Jesus say in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Two statements. I am is in Hebrew. Hello, I'm God. The second is the way and the truth and the life. God is, he is separate, and he is truth. John 17, as Jesus prayed, Sanctify them by your truth, for your word is truth. The word is God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All these things are synonymous. God is. He is objective. He is the truth. You can even go back to uh, Joshua chapter 22. Be very careful to keep the commandment and law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Why? Because he is not like you. He's not like the gods of the Ammonites. He's not like those gods that you would sacrifice your children to. This is God Almighty. Do not mess with God Almighty. He is different. He is separate. The next attribute about God's truth is it's absolute. Does it change? Does your truth change? Does the truth that you have inside of you fluctuate with your circumstances? How do you interpret your circumstances? Psalm 119, 160, I'll be quoting this a lot. It says, the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. It keeps going. It's cool how you read the Bible one year, you make a note next to a passage because it touched you about something you were going through. You read it again six months later, it's like, I don't remember that. (laughs) I'm getting something totally different from it. But his truth is permanent, and his word changes us. It itself does not change. In Revelation 4.8, again, the throne room of God, each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Does that sound like something that's going to change? 
It's eternal. That process is continuous. The 24 elders throw their crowns down before the throne and worship him and echo, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is permanent. That's our future. He is not only separate, but it's continuous and it's eternal. He does not change. And then in Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he promised, he confirmed it with an oath. He did this so that by two unchanging things in which, one, it's impossible for God to lie, two, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. God does not lie. There is no darkness in him at all. None. And so we move on to three, revealed. Good question. How do we know what God's truth is? How do you know? And it really gets to the, it gets down to the bottom here pretty quick. Where are we going to get the truth? We can look at creation. Romans 1 talks about creation. We have no excuse because in creation we see reflected God's character, his nature, his eternal being. But it doesn't reveal to us how then shall we live or what his attributes are that we could be more like him. The fact is, we have the Bible in front of us. And this is probably a weak spot for everybody in this room, myself included, okay? How well do you know the Bible is the first question. The second question is, do you trust the Bible? Do you believe the Bible is the revealed word of God for us? I'm going to give you a snapshot, just, I mean, like a really brief snapshot, because I don't want everybody to go to sleep. But... This book has been assaulted like no other book in history. And when I say assaulted, I mean picked apart. And it didn't just start in this century. In the 1800s, archaeologists, in efforts to disprove the Bible, would find places and events in the Bible and then go to Israel and Syria and Jordan and Egypt and try to disprove it. And guess what happens? Every time they find exactly what the Bible says. Okay. I could go into some examples, but really, I've listed some references up there on the screen, and I recommend you write these down. Buy a book that talks about how the Bible defends itself. Okay, 2,500 years of texts from the Old Testament. Quick snapshot. Do you think the Jews took the, took the Scripture seriously? Yeah. I mean, if 500... Uh, 500 A.D., the Masoretes, that's after the birth of Christ. Just to keep up with the demand for scripts in synagogues around the world, the Masoretes was a, a sect, basically, of the Jews that developed a process by which they not only counted each letter in each line of each book, they counted the words. They gave numerical values to each letter. They had spreadsheets off to the side for each book to verify that not one jot, not one tittle, not one cross, not one comma was missing. And that was only from 500 AD. The texts they have go back to long before 500 BC. The Old Testament is absolutely, irrefutably, the most textually relevant, most well-researched, most archaeologically proven book in the world. And thanks to the Jews, it, it remains so. For the New Testament, 
Our texts go back over 1,900 years. 40 different authors, most of whom never met, most of whom never talked, never corresponded, and yet they put together books, letters that reference each other so completely. How could this be? How could that happen? 19,000 plus text and text fragments, three different languages, historically verified. Again, nothing's been assailed like the Bible. The internal evidence alone from these passages of Scripture that reference each other, for example, the New Testament referencing the Old Testament, they are absolutely 100% consistent. I just recommend you write those words down there, how we got our Bible, Ralph Earl, Chuck Missler, really good ones. I've listened to a series by Ken Ortiz on how we got our Bible. It's a, it was done on evenings. It's not a very formal series, but it's excellent. I'd be happy to give you an audio copy of that. But I recommend you firm up your knowledge of how unfallible the scripture is. I'm not going to say there aren't inconsistencies in there, but I'll tell you this, that the inconsistencies that have been documented account to less than four-tenths of one page out of your 1,300-plus page Bible. And we're talking inconsistencies such as um, in, uh, I think it's, mm, I think it's Jeremiah, but I'm not sure. City of Aphek, where a wall fell down and killed 27,000. The difference in the Hebrew word between 27 and 27,000 is one dot. If one dot is missing, it's 27. If it's not one dot, then it's 27,000. Those are the kinds of inconsistencies we're talking about. We're not talking about, is Jesus God? We're not talking about, um, was Bethlehem his birthplace? Okay. So think about that. Make sure you learn and trust your Bible because that is where we get the revealed word of God. Okay, moving along. Is the Bible understandable? Is the truth understandable? And really, does God expect you to understand it? That's the real question. In Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is rebuking somebody, and he's saying, didn't you even read in the scriptures? Inferring that, yes, you're supposed to read the scriptures. And, of course, if you're supposed to read the scriptures, you're supposed to interpret them. In Matthew 22, he said, Matthew 22, 29, um, you're mistaken, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Same thing. Yes, you're expected to know the scriptures and understand the power of God in them. Luke 24, 27, and verse 45 And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. He referenced the scriptures to explain to his disciples what's really going on. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. God expects us to come to him to understand the scriptures. In John 5.39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Yet these are they that prophesy about me. Yes, we have to know the scriptures, and we have to dwell on them. That's the only way we're going to have that biblical worldview. We are expected to. So this is where it gets painful, guys. You thought it was painful now. (laughs) So what about application? Does this truth work in your life? Okay, 
If you have a biblical worldview, is it coming out? Is it changing the way you think about things? You remember when Paul had his road to Damascus experience. What was it that Paul said? Paul didn't say a whole lot. (laughs) He encountered Jesus Christ in a bright cloud. Everybody around him saw the cloud. He falls on his knees. And Jesus says, well, first Paul says, who are you, Lord? And then Lord says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. You know what? It's hard when you resist. It's hard when you kick against the goads. And Paul says, what do you want me to do? The truth, when you encounter Jesus Christ, means that you should be different. We should be different. Things should change in our life. And if we're looking at the truth, it should transform how we look at the world around us, how we react with the world around us, how we interact with the world around us. And I might add, there's some of us that think that, well, you know, I'm not well-spoken. Um, I don't know. I don't have that many gifts. As if, as if Jesus has a deep bench, as if he has a second string out there. I don't know if you're ball players or you like watching sports. Everybody's bored who wants to watch sports now because there's no sports to watch. Besides maybe college football games with 50 people on each side, so I'm told. But there is no bench with Jesus Christ, okay? Everybody plays. Everybody plays the starting team 100% all the time. You're expected. You're expected to respond. When he says go, we're going. The question is when, how, how high? What do you want me to do? He calls, we go. And you remember that Jesus said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That thing that we're seeking to do, we're seeking to live for him, he's expecting us to act on what we know because our relationship with him is conditional on that. We do need to do more than say, Lord, Lord. We need to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? The first component of that is do you hear it? Do you seek it? Proverbs is full of this stuff about wisdom. I mean, wisdom is like got to be two-thirds of Proverbs. Buy the truth and do not sell it says Proverbs 23, 23. Wisdom, instruction, and insight. Acts 17, those Bereans were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. When you take in what the world is giving you, when you take in what I'm giving you, when you take in whatever teacher is giving you, you should be saying, is that true? Is that so? And when politicians or anybody else in authority around in your sphere of influence instructs you or or presumes to instruct you, you should weigh that against what the scripture says. Weigh that against what you know about the character and the nature of God. Because we are responsible for our actions. We're not responsible for anybody else's actions. Jesus, in talking about the parable of the sower, said this, referring to the seed that was scattered by the, the man who walked on the, on the way. He said, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. The implication is that the word of God, when it's spread out there, is going to bring forth fruit. It's going to provide something of value to God. It's not stuff you're supposed to eat. <laughs> it's stuff that he's going to eat. This is going to be stuff that he reaps in a harvest. Again, 
evaluate what comes in. Think about it through God's paradigm, God's point of view, his biblical worldview for us, and measure it and see if your actions are going to line up with what he has called us to do. Do you want to walk in it? Are you willing? And I think that's a part for some of us who are kind of um, scared of taking leaps of faith, um, afraid that maybe you're going to fail. I think all of us face that from time to time. We fear that we're not going to do well. If we step out in faith to serve the Lord in something he's calling us to, or if we are afraid to tell the truth in front of people that will disapprove of us, we feel like we're going to flop. We're going to botch it. But are you willing, I think, is the real question. One thing I learned when I was in Haiti for a couple of years, off and on, is every time I went there and I thought I had something I was supposed to do while I was there, God would show me it was something totally different. I went there initially to do relief feeding um, after the earthquake in 2010, got engaged in distributing dry goods and foods, then got into construction. And I thought, well, that's it. Yeah, I'm supposed to be in provisional pole buildings for churches and schools and And as I was doing that, I found out pretty quick, no, my chief job was to listen to people. Uh, I was exhausted one day. It was uh, up at four in the morning eating food that really doesn't agree with me and terrible coffee and heading up the road remotely to go in the blazing heat to put in a pole building with no tools, and it's just horrible. But as we're doing this, at the end of the day, at 11 o'clock at night, I'm waiting for my turn for the shower, 11 o'clock at night. You get an idea how long the days are. A guy comes up to me and says, hey, can I talk? And he talks to me about his life, you know, assistant pastor in a big church, struggling in his marriage. His boss disapproves of him greatly. He doesn't even know if he's called to be a pastor anymore. And for two hours, I talked with him and prayed with him. Another time, we were headed out to deliver food. We were going to get on a, no kidding, lobster boat, take it across a bay. We were going to put on two tons of food. And... uh it, it was critical that we get it over there because the food distribution was running low and the weather was horrible. I mean, prior to that, the waves were super choppy, six-foot swells, boat couldn't handle it. So our window was open. We're getting ready to go, me and my nephew. We're getting ready to go out the door. And who comes in but six middle-aged women, all of them hysterically crying, coming into our compound, Wesleyan Church compound, and they had just lost their best one of their best friends. It was one of the nurse crew that had come out there to do services on this island and that morning they'd walked by him thinking he was sleeping and he had aspirated in his sleep he had taken too many benadryl had a chest cold and he he died in his sleep and they walked right by him and i spent a day and a half escorting one person um around and basically praying with her and consoling her and helping her get on a plane to go back home But that's how God works. You think you show up and you know what you're going to do. But the truth is, he just wants you to show up. And you've got to realize that you are not prepared. God is prepared. Famous line from uh, one of those military movies. I don't know if it's Full Metal Jacket or what. But what is your purpose, Private So-and-So? Truth is, Private So-and-So, you don't have a purpose. The Marine Corps has a purpose. That's true of God. He has a purpose for your life, and he's going to do it. Okay, he's going to accomplish it. So you need to be willing. Teach me your way. I will walk in your truth. Heed to take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. 
And as John says, For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Just as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. We need to do it willingly. And here's the last part. Do you reflect on the truth? What kind of feedback do you take? Because this is not a one-time event. Like that air crew on flight 007, when they switched the autopilot to heading 245 and they had it set to heading, under normal circumstances, that would have worked. They would have departed on 245 and headed right out the radial out on the R-20 route. But when you start out off course, and we all start out off course, all of us, when you switch to heading, it's not going to automatically just jerk the airplane over another 12 miles to the left. It's not going to be automatic for you and me that all of a sudden we're going to receive the truth and get it all at once. How many of you, when you were saved, knew even one book of the Bible? <laughs> not even one. There's no way. We didn't know God. We didn't care for him. Some of us had grown up in the church, and that helps, but... Truth is, we don't know the truth. We have to seek it. We have to look for it. And we have to reflect on it. We have to consider our ways. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. Or in Psalm 139, one of my favorites, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Don't just point me in the direction and then, you know, wind me up and then let me go because I'm not going in the right direction. I'll start banking to the right. No, I need you to lead me. I need you to pull me along. For as we know, as we read in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped. So where's your course right now? And where should you be? And the reason I ask this is because we're going through a really difficult time. As a church, we're, we're relatively unscathed. I'm very thankful for that. We've had some division. We've had some consternation. We've had letters flying around. But for the most part, people understand that we're going to come at this whole COVID thing from a little different viewpoint on each side. We're going to the word. We're hopefully taking the whole counsel of the word when we look at these things. But we're going to come at it a little differently, so we're showing grace to each other. But that's just here in the church. But in our nation, um, this is, oh, there's that word again. It's unprecedented. I hate that word. It's historic. The hinges are coming off the gate. This is not normal, okay? The United States is not at some minor turning point. This isn't like, oh, gee, there's lilies ahead. I think we should turn the boat a little bit. Now, this is like we're going up on the rocks. This is a constitutional crisis on many different levels, and it doesn't matter if you like Trump or if you like Biden. That doesn't make any difference. The problem is we as the church, we are the staying power for Jesus Christ, for the truth. We are it. And I don't get the sense in our congregation, and I'm sorry if it sounds hard, I don't get the sense in our congregation or in other congregations that aren't even meeting yet that they understand us. Okay, we are the salt and the light. So how is it if we don't meet or we don't proclaim the truth or we don't discern the truth, how is it that's going to change things? Is thing, are things just going to keep going as normal in our society? 
I don't think so. I'll be frank. Listen to what Alex de Tocqueville said. Maybe you heard of him. He's 21 years old, French aristocrat, politician, came over to the U.S. in 1805. Um, I'm sorry, in 1825. Lived here for three years. Trying to figure out why was the French Revolution such a bloody mess? What happened? We did the same things that the Americans did, but it ended up in a disaster, and we've had nothing but emperors ever since. So he came here, and he took notes, and he wrote books. The most important one was Democracy in America. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. That's nothing new, right? Well, we carry salt and light in us. So how come we're not out there rubbing it into the rotten meat of our society around us? How come we're not proclaiming it? How come we're not inviting people to hear the word of God in our homes or in our workplace or in our golf courses? This should be more than just life as usual, guys. If we don't proclaim it, there is nothing restraining this, this sentiment of God hatred that surrounds us. And it's pretty tame around here, but you don't have to go far to find it. You've got to recognize that we're it. We're, the ban- we're not the bench, we're the team. Jeremiah 7, 28, So shall you say to them, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. That is the destiny of every nation that does not heed the word of God. It's the dustbin of history. Who knows when the rapture is going to happen? Joan and I are praying soon, but then again, we've still got animals to harvest, so I kind of like to not let that go to waste. What are you doing with your trajectory? What about your health, your wealth, your time, your gifts, your skills, your family, your friends? Are you treating this like the last days? Because... As our flight is very short and our nation is in a crisis, it should be like a little prod in the the buttocks for us. We should be preaching and teaching the truth and being unashamed about it. This is God's truth. It's not your truth. It's not my idea. It's his. If you need a little shoring up, remember those references I gave you about how to learn about where our Bible came from. Be confident that this is the word of God. Where do you spend the most time? Boy, that's convicting. Every time I say that, I hurt. At one point in my life when I was struggling to keep all my priorities in order because we had kids and we were doing all kinds of things, and I remember saying, well, of course my relationship with God comes first and then my family second and then job third and Navy Reserve fourth. And then I looked at where I was spending my time. Someone encouraged me to do that. And guess what? It was an inverse relationship. (laughs) What about you? Where do you spend your time? Is it just on stuff and ministry in the church, which is awesome? Or is it also reaching out into the community? There are, I don't know how many organizations that need us desperately just to get by. Food banks are a great example. Ambulance, farmer's market, fire district. I mean, I, you could just keep going. There are so many organizations that need help, and we could be there reflecting the light of Jesus Christ and speaking into our culture.
Do you cherry pick stuff out of the Bible? That's one of my next questions. And we're all guilty of this. We all got a particular view of how we want to look at our circumstance and this difficult time we're going through. But are you willing to look at the whole counsel of God? Are you willing to take feedback on that? Because there's some of us who are really camping out on how things ought to be politically, health-wise, you know, for our nation. And we need to take the whole counsel of God into, a, into consideration here. And that should also influence how we vote. Just checked last night, took a quick look. Somewhere between 10 and 30% of evangelical Christians are going to vote for a candidate that is staunchly pro-abortion. That should not be. Let me just tell you right now. It is unthinkable to God. He said it twice in Jeremiah. I would not even think of such a thing that you would offer your children up to be sacrificed. Granted, there's pain and suffering involved in families that are going through this. But as the governor of Virginia proposed, they would terminate a child's life. They would kill a child who is born simply based on whether the mother likes the sex or not. And I'm not making this up. That is absurd. God never even let his cross his mind. It never crossed God's mind. So how is it that you could vote for somebody who would promote such a thing or a party that would promote such a thing? It's absurd. And I know that's offensive to some of you, but the truth is you got to look at it from God's perspective. This isn't Pete telling you this. This is God. And we need to be aware that he does hold us accountable. And as one of my friends who's not here today told me the other day, he wonders if someday, like at the Nuremberg trials in heaven, we will be held accountable for the bloodshed of over 30 million children, like in the Holocaust. Standing by, talking about it, thinking it's wrong, and not lifting a finger. In fact, promoting those who would bureaucratically find ways to kill more children. That's absurd, okay? We need to understand that. This is wrong. And this is a biblical worldview. This is not me cherry-picking stuff. But you need to know that as we go into this year, be wise, pursue what God would have you do, and be willing to take feedback from him on these things. Before I close up here, some of you probably wondered where I've been for a few years. Um, I came back to the church here after teaching in Rice, and uh, I needed time off, to be frank with you. It was, it was a challenging thing, and I was drained. And I was working in Spokane at the time, and, and as a result, I was pretty well worn out. I knew that if I tried to plug right in and just jump up and do something that God was doing before, I'd be getting out in front of him. So I didn't. And I waited a long time. But at the same time, I recognized that unless God was going to do this, I couldn't do it because it's not me who speaks when I come up here. I'm not that gifted. And one of the reasons I don't like it is because I get beat up, like some pastors will tell you. They, they, feel, the, they feel the pressure the day before and the day after teaching or the day of. Some pastors get it really bad, but it's a lot of internal conversations in your head, Satan accusing and and it's difficult. And so I was being a wimp and I was saying, I don't want to be beat up. I don't want to do that. And then what if people don't like me? That always comes in there. But here's the thing. No matter what you do, if you're living the truth, no matter where you are, you are going to be the aroma of life leading to life to some people. And they're going to embrace it. And to others, not so much. 
the stench of death, and they're going to reject you. And that's part of the deal. You cannot avoid it. We cannot avoid it. When you get out of the foxhole and you start running toward the enemy, he's not taking a break on the machine gun, okay? He's not going to say, okay, I'll give you 10, 20 more yards, and then I'll, then I'll start shooting. And unfortunately, when you're in a foxhole with a lot of other Christians and they're doing their best, sometimes you get shot in the back. That's part of the deal. But if everybody gets out of the foxhole, you know what? Things happen. The gates of hell will not prevail against that. So remember, this is applicable. This truth this is meant to be going out, reaching our community. So let's just close on that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for joining us here and for encountering us and drawing us into you. And just pray that your word would impact us and change us, that we would be willing to move out. We'd be willing to volunteer. We'd be willing to serve. We'd be willing to speak. Uh, But most of all, Father, I pray that we would be willing to hear and to reference your word, that we wouldn't be led astray by our own impulse or by our I don't know, common sense. And help us, uh, help us to not be complacent, Father. I just pray that you'd spur us on to love and good deeds for your will and your purposes and your truth. I just pray this in Jesus' name.